morning. I certainly am glad to be back with you today. I think it's been probably about five years since I was here last. And as you know already, I'm a missionary in Senegal, West Africa. What you may not know is that Senegal is a Muslim country. And when we very first got there in whatever year it was, 1996, I think it was, we began studying French. And we had a local Senegalese woman that was our French tutor. Now, if you could say that a person had the spiritual gift of arguing, this person could argue. She had a Bible, she would go home and read at night, and then when she'd come back the next day for French class with us, and she would have all these reasons she'd made up again about why the Bible was wrong or contradicted itself, and that was basically our French lesson for our first year in Senegal was arguing from Genesis to Revelation. Now this really makes you dive into learning French because you have to make all these arguments and argue in class every day. I, after that year, moved out of the capital, up country to where we've worked all the, the last 20 years, and I was glad to lose sight of this person. And if you'd asked me back then, who in Senegal is probably the least likely to ever get saved, I probably would have said Yassine our French tutor. About five years ago, like 15 years have gone by, about five years ago, a new missionary says to me, hey, I'm learning French, and I started to say, whatever you do, don't go to this woman named Yassine. And he says, we have this tutor who says she knows you and used to teach you French a long time ago, and her name is Yassine. And I said, I'm so sorry, somebody should have warned you about studying with this person. And he says, no, she's not so bad. In fact, I told her I would see you this weekend. And she wanted me to say, she still remembers what you said about Hophni and Phineas from the Old Testament. That's how thoroughly we argued through the Bible. And I thought, yeah, right, she remembers that. She probably thought of some new argument she can't wait to unload on me about Hophni and Phineas. A little over a year ago, right before I came back to the States to visit our supporting churches like I'm doing now, Another brand new missionary in the capital, he's going on about how wonderful this language helper is, how she helped bargain with their landlord, and went down to the police station and helped wheel and deal with the police with them and, and, and helped them get their visas, and how she's always at church and helps translate at church. And I thought, wow, if only there was a, a, a French tutor like that back when we were studying French. And then he says, she wanted me to tell you hi, because it's your old teacher, Yassine. And I said, what shift in the cosmos? What, what personality transplant has occurred? And he says, well, she got saved a couple years ago. Now, now, in this part of the world, when a Muslim gets saved, in this case, her husband had to leave her, take their daughter with him. She lost her job. She lost her place to live. She had to find a, a place to live all alone and basically makes a living today just teaching French to new missionaries. I like that story for a lot of reasons. But if I could take one story that basically, as some kind of parable, sums up what's happened in Senegal the last 20 years, it's this story. Because things that looked impossible slowly became possible, and things that were difficult or seemed like a long shot steadily became easier and easier. I'll never forget my very first night in the town of San Luis, the fishing town that we've worked in all these years. 
wasn't long after my 22nd birthday. And we didn't know it, but in this town on that day, it was a Muslim pilgrimage. And all the men from this particular sect of Islam, they were making their pilgrimage to visit the holy man that lived right across the street from where we were spending the night. And we were on the second floor of this two-story building. I hear all this ruckus outside, so I go out onto the balcony. And I stand on the balcony, I look down into the narrow street in front of us, and it is shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder men, into the hundreds, maybe into the, uh, a few thousand. As far as you can see down the road, just crammed in this narrow street, making their way to come pay homage to their Muslim leader in the house across from us. In this particular sect, when they get, get, get together for this sort of thing, they all wear four sets of clothing. So they're all walking down the street like this in their four sets of clothing. And some men are, are beginning to spin around and whirl around and dance around, working themselves up into these ecstatic states. I see a couple guys are even hitting themselves with chunk of, chunks of concrete or pieces of metal. And every so often, somebody down in that whirling festival of weirdness will see me on the balcony, and our eyes would meet for a second, and then he would jeer and shake his fist. And I remember thinking to myself, I've read about Islam, I've read about Senegal, but I have no idea it was going to be like this. And I knew then and there that for the gospel to take root in this part of the world, there was going to be a fight. And it, even in spite of all the highs and lows over the last 20 years, God had a plan and still has a plan. And there's no fortress of false religion, of spiritual darkness anywhere on this world. There's no political agenda. There's no prognosis from your doctor or addiction or painful life experience where God hasn't already won the victory. And he doesn't need our puny human efforts so that he can win faster or win by more. He just calls us to live and to participate in the victory he's already won. A lot of times people ask me, what kind of work do you do on the mission field? I say, well, the short answer is I do the same thing I would do if I still lived in rural Nebraska. I do the work of John the Baptist. Even as a boy, I was always so impressed with John the Baptist. Not because of his fashion sense or his diet so much, but because he was always so clear on this point. He can't do anything. He's simply preparing the way for the Lord. And that's all we do. We create the situation where God does that which only God can do. Now think for a moment, what kind of situation do you create at your place of employment? Or where you go to school? Or right, even right under your own roof? What situation do you take with you to go visit your neighbor? Create the situation where God takes action. God takes action where God is glorified. We worked in northern Senegal, in that Muslim environment, for over a decade. And the Lord opened doors for us to open a Christian elementary school. And what makes it Christian is the students, even though the students are all Muslim, receive about a 10-minute Bible lesson every morning so that each class stories through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, over the course of a school year. And on top of that, the school day opens and closes in prayer in the name of Jesus. And the school is staffed by Senegalese Christians from the southern part of Senegal 
where Islam is softer and most of the Christians in Senegal are all in the southern part of the country. Now we opened the school and a team came from Nebraska and dug the foundation. We raised all this money, did the first phase of construction, did all this publicity all over town. Do you know how many people came and enrolled their kids in that school when it first opened? I've never put this in a newsletter. But I'll only say it because we're not streaming this message live today online. Eight kids enrolled in that school when it first opened. And the pressure was so great on the Muslim parents who did enroll their kids from their neighbors that one mom came and withdrew her twins after a couple months, and by October, enrollment had plummeted from eight down to six. But God had a plan. Even one morning, we showed up at the school during that first year. I remember somebody had taken a, a, like a black piece of charcoal and had scratched an Arabic curse across the front of the school. And they'd gone down the road and they did the same thing on the front of the house of a local imam because they thought he was soft on Western education. It was an experiment. But again, God had already won, even if we didn't know it, even if we couldn't see it at that point in time. That school grew from six kids its first year to about 45 kids the second year. At some point, I remember when it reached about 105 kids a year or so after that, up to 250 kids. In the last few years, it's had a little over 400 kids, even though it's only supposed to hold about 375. We cut it off at 430 this year and even turned away about another 200 kids who came and asked if they could get in, but the school was just at max capacity. And because the parents pay tuition every month, the school has a profit at the end of the school year. Last year they took that profit and bought a vacant lot a few blocks away to build a second campus eventually, so they can double the size of the school. It didn't look like that was ever going to happen when the school opened. And even though we didn't know it then, God had already won. I remember during that first year, when things looked so maybe difficult and the path to victory so obscure, praying for God to open the doors and to do something. One Saturday, it happened. Our twins, who were quite small at the time, used to go and play tennis at the local tennis court a couple times a week. There was a Muslim man named Zal there. And Zal, if you saw him, you wouldn't think he was too good at tennis because the left side of his body was kind of paralyzed and he actually drug the, drags the left foot behind him when he walks. If he ever got you on the tennis court, he will destroy you. And the twins would go and they'd hit the ball back and forth with Zal and he would laugh with them and joke with them and they'd tell each other funny stories and they kind of got to learn to play tennis from, from their friend Zal. And one Saturday morning, I'm there watching the kids hit the ball around and somebody comes up to me and says, did you hear about Zal? I said, what happened? He's right here playing tennis. They said, well, no, it's not him, it's his daughter. Because Zal couldn't afford to pay rent anywhere, he and his family were squatting in an abandoned building. And in the night, that old building, it, it collapsed on everybody inside, and everyone made it out except for Saul's daughter, who was about five years old at the time. 
when they found her in the rubble, she was already in a coma. They were keeping her in a coma in the small clinic in our town, waiting for her to wake up before they sent her down to the main hospital in the capital. And she was still in a coma on this day, this Saturday. So I went to Zoll after tennis, and I said, tomorrow morning at church, at 10 o'clock, all the believers in Jesus in town, like all six of us, we get together and we pray for whatever needs we've seen in town. I want you to know we're going to pray for your daughter tomorrow morning at church. So the next day at church, I explained it. We prayed. We had church. We went home. The next day, Monday, I'm sitting in traffic, and I have the windows rolled down about an inch on either side. And as I'm sitting there in traffic, this long, skinny arm comes in the passenger side window through that crack that the window is rolled down. It unlocks the door from the outside and then opens the door. Now, normally, you would look for some way to defend yourself in this kind of situation, but it was Zal, the tennis coach. And Zal, I remember as he spoke, his eyes were as big as saucers and his hands were even shaking. And he said, I was at the hospital yesterday and my daughter woke up from a coma. And I remembered what you said about praying at 10 o'clock and I looked at the clock on the wall and it was like 10.09, which of course is the Assemblies of God 10 o'clock. And I just had probably a minute to share with him about the Bible and about Jesus before all the cars behind me in traffic began to honk. And I sat down with him at length on countless occasions after that. It's been years ago now. And one of the last times I spoke with him, he said to me, my grandfather was a Muslim, my dad was a Muslim, I'm a Muslim, my kids are Muslim, but Jesus is the best. And as the Lord worked things out, Zal was a complete blabbermouth. Because he went all over town. When people saw his daughter, they said, Whoa, congratulations, what happened? Your daughter's here. He said, Well, they prayed for her at that church that meets at that school. That was on a Monday. Wednesday, after Bible study, two Muslim women are there. One wants prayer for her stomach, the other for her shoulder. The Sunday after that, it was somebody else. And practically... Every Sunday and every Wednesday, even to this day, and it's been almost a decade, Muslims are there. In fact, now they come every day and ask for prayer from the pastor who just spends most of the day in the school office because those are the prayers that work. Even the students at the school will ask for prayer. Now, of course, legally we can't proselytize children in that situation, but there's been all kinds of times where I remember one story, a girl was on her way to school, again, a Muslim girl from a Muslim family, and a snake jumps out of the path in front of her, and she jumps back, and she says, Jesus, save me from the snake. And she thinks about this all the rest of the way to the school, and she tells her teacher about this, and she says, that must be what's in my heart, because that's what I said as soon as I saw the snake. A couple years ago, a man probably wider than he is tall, looks like he can play professional football, came bursting into the school office, furious he just found his daughter on her knees praying in the name of Jesus. She was getting ready for school. She couldn't find one of her books. She began to pray. Then her dad stumbled into the room and saw her there praying like that, and he just hit the ceiling. He could not stand that. 
And he went to the government, he went to the police, he went to the academic community, did all these things to try and create problems with us, but he himself had already signed the waiver at the beginning of the school year saying he knew we would teach the Bible and pray in the name of Jesus. God doing what only God can do. That's the best we can hope for. We can wear ourselves out with our human efforts and our expectations, but nothing's going to last until God takes action. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis 39, starting at verse 20. You know, I think about the worst thing you can do in Senegal is eat or drink in front of other people who don't have anything to eat or drink. But we're not in Senegal this morning. <laughs> Genesis 39 from verse 20. This is the life saga of Joseph. I think everybody knows this story. He's the youngest but the favorite son. His brothers can't stand that, so they stage his death. They tell Dad Bigfoot ate him. They throw him in the bottom of a well, sell him into slavery in Egypt. Then there's a famine in their homeland in Israel. And eventually they have to come back and grovel to their long-lost brother, Joseph. And Joseph goes from the bottom of the well to slavery to being falsely accused by his boss's wife and then thrown in jail. And that's where we actually catch up with the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 39. Now here's an interesting question for you. How many years of history do you think the book of Genesis covers? From the start of Genesis to the end, how many years go by? Like 300, 500, 800, maybe 1,000? Actually, a lot of experts' best guess, something like 2,500 years go by over the course of the book of Genesis. Now, almost all of that is wrapped up with something like Blizz Blaz begat Himham. <laughs> but in that vast amount of time, there's instances where you get a close-up, almost slow-motion, play-by-play look at the life story of someone. You see what God is doing in someone's life, how he is doing it, and then you have to decide what that's going to mean to you. Abraham, the friend of God, saved by faith, gets 13 chapters of airtime in the book of Genesis. In the same way, Joseph gets 13 chapters of airtime in the book of Genesis. The two main characters, what is God doing? What's the message here? What's it going to mean to me? So here Joseph is, a slave, falsely accused, chapter 39, starting at verse 20. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. These verses may not look too important, especially compared to the whole long life saga of Joseph. Why are these verses 
in my opinion, the most important passage in all the texts devoted to Joseph. What makes this so important? This is that ricochet moment in Joseph's life. This is that rebound moment. Because everything that's happened to Joseph up until those verses we just read, everything is bad. And everything about Joseph goes from bad to worse to even worse to way even worse than that. Despised by his brothers, thrown in a well, sold into slavery, falsely accused and tossed into prison. What do you suppose life expectancy was in a Bronze Age prison? I'm guessing about 1.2 years. It doesn't get any worse than this. But this is where the ricochet happens. This is rock bottom. This is that moment where Joseph starts playing the country music backwards. You all know what happens when you play country music backwards. First your dog comes back. Then that boss that fired you for no reason calls you back and grovels. And finally your wife comes back. And everything bad that happens undoes itself and reverses itself till you finally get back to how, thing, how everything should have stayed in the first place. That's what starts from this moment. Now we all know the rest of the story. He eventually gets out of jail because miraculously he is able to interpret dreams. Then he gets into politics. God does some more amazing things. He ends up being the pharaohs, the king's right-hand man, basically runs Egypt. And then when his family comes back because of the famine, he's able to say, everything you meant for bad, God used for good. One of my favorite things about the Old Testament is that you always get told why. Why does God bless Israel here and not there? Why does God use this person or bless this person and not somebody else? The text will always tell you what quality, what there is in that person that commends you, commends that person to you as an example, and commends that person into the long-term plan of God. What stands out in the life of Joseph? We read it twice in the verses we just read. Twice the Bible says here, God is with Joseph. In fact, in the chapter 39, there's a total of four times, the Bible says God is with Joseph. Now think about that for a moment. All of this bad stuff, all of these lies, all of these elaborate plots hatched against him by his own family, by his boss's wife, all of this stuff, not because of anything bad he had ever done, but he lost his great job and his great future he had in his family and the family business to become a slave and then to end up in jail in Egypt, where it probably wouldn't take long to die. Even in spite of all of that, he never lost God's presence. And again, there's no problem, there's no sickness, there's no bad thing someone else can do to you or against you that can separate you from God's presence. Not even a demon or the devil himself can separate you from God's presence. But what can? How could Joseph have lost God's presence in his life? What could have separated Joseph from God? His own lack of faith, his own bad behavior, or his own bad attitude towards God? That really will separate you from God and derail God's plan for your life. Now, how many times could Joseph have looked at his situation and said to himself, if God is even real, 
If God even knows who I am, if God is just, and if God ever had some coherent plan for me in my life, I must have done something that derailed it. Because look at all this bad stuff that happened to me. Joseph had ample opportunity the first half of his life to give up on God. But he never did. He knew there would be a ricochet, a rebound moment. That's why Joseph's life is there for us. That's why he's recorded so elaborately, so thoroughly in the book of Genesis. God is a turnaround God who turns situations around, who leads us through difficulty so he can lead us through good times as well. He's not a God who choreographs everything in life so it will be easy. He's a God who's not afraid to lead us through suffering and difficulty if it makes us better, if we don't let hardship change who we are on the inside towards him. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. When would you have given up on God? Probably right before you landed at the bottom of the well. Or maybe when you got to Egypt and saw what you had to do there as a slave. Maybe when you saw how small your cell was going to be in prison. It would have made sense. I was in San Diego a couple months ago, and I got to go to Coronado Island and, and see the, the, the naval base there, and even go past where they train the Navy SEALs. And I got to see all this cool stuff they do, and the training is like super intense. In the last... I think it's even a couple weeks you have to do at the end of the Navy SEAL training is almost around the clock being screamed at and swimming in freezing ocean water and jumping out of helicopters and shooting weapons and carrying telephone poles together and digging holes to fill them in and dig them again. Around the clock, brutal, grueling physical and mental labor. Now, at any moment, you can give up. In fact, there's a bell in the middle of the camp where they do this. And whenever you feel like it, you can go over and you can hit the bell. And as soon as that bell sounds, you've dropped out of the Navy SEAL training. That hardship ends right then, but you won't become a Navy SEAL. Now, what they tell me is, the first couple days, nobody will hit the bell. But the most common thing is somebody will break a bone in, in their foot. And you'll limp over to the bell, and you'll have to hit it and drop out. And then everyone will hear that sound, that toll of the bell. And then there's usually two or three guys who are thinking, man, my back is killing me, and I really miss my mom. And they'll go, and they'll hit the bell as well, because they didn't want to be the first ones to hit the bell. But now that somebody else did. And after that, there'll be more broken bones. There'll be separated shoulders. There'll be concussions. One by one, people go, and they hit the bell. Finally, they're left with just a fraction of the guys they start with most of the time. There's no doubt in my mind that there's people who should be in church today, who should be walking with the Lord, who maybe even should be in this church with us here today. But at some point, they hit the bell. They gave up on God. They looked at the situation, they said, this is too difficult. Or if God is really out there and he's personal, he doesn't see this, or I did something, or something happened, and, and I just can't go on anymore. They didn't learn the lesson of Joseph. 
I remember in about 2005, not long after we started the school, I looked around and everything we had done failed to find traction in reaching Muslims. We'd ran an English center for six or seven years and taught English to even several hundred people, Muslims, had come and studied English with us during the course of that time. We did all we could for friendship evangelism, but nothing was getting anywhere. And some of the time, it just looked like everything we did was just going to end up in shambles. And I realized about 2005 that over the last year, everybody I knew, other missionaries, Senegalese pastors, our family members back here in the States, our, our missionary leaders and our gurus and officials at headquarters, all of them had said to me at some point in the last year, just move somewhere else. Move down to the capital with everyone else. Or check out what could happen if you go to this other country next door. Or think of how great the weather is on this island or this other place. Or go to the Mediterranean. What if? We wouldn't have gone back. We wouldn't have started that school. And even in spite of all the hardship the first few years, none of that would have happened. A few years ago, I made this drive all the way across northern Senegal to this town about seven hours away from the town we live in. And as you go down this road, there is literally not a known Christian anywhere in this part of Senegal. It's just town after town after town, 100% Muslim. And I get to this one place that was our destination seven hours away, and I drop off this letter to the local officials, asking them to give us land so we can start another Christian school and start it in their town. And they laughed and they said, we don't want no Christian nothing in this town. You need to study a map. I left the letter there. I drove home and I called back about every month. But a couple times they hung up on me. Then I got this email. The mayor of that town, when he retired, the last thing he did on the last day we sign all the documents and stamp everything for us to have an area larger than a football field on the side of town. And he sent it on to the capital to the Ministry of Interior so it could all be made official. And he sent me an email saying, nobody knows this yet, but you've got land and here's the papers. So I went back to that town and I said, we've got land here. And they jeered and they carried on and they said, you couldn't have land. You'd have to have this paper and that paper and so-and-so would have had to have signed it. And after they got all done, I pulled all those papers out and put them down. And they went into the back office and they tried on the phone for an hour to reverse it. And they couldn't. And that school started the same way. It started with about nine kids. It was up to about 53 the next year. This year it was up to about almost 160 kids already in its third year. God doing what only God can do. And every week I would make that long drive, that seven-hour drive to that town. The nearest Christian presence is the town we live in, seven hours away. And there was this one village that seemed like every time I drove through it, it got bigger. And I had to stop there once to get my alternator fixed on my car. And when I got there, I kind of did, you know, where's your mechanic? 
And it ended up being about a 15-year-old boy that hotwired my alternator so I could have headlights and get the rest of the way home. And for the hour or so that I was there in that town while they fixed my car, I kind of walked around. I thought, man, this town, I wonder if a Christian is, this could be the longest a Christian has ever been in this town, is me here for this time right now. And I prayed, I said, God, someday send somebody to this simple, remote, out-of-the-way place. And about two months after that, I had this dream where I saw myself back in the town, in that town, and I'm on my cell phone. And this voice is speaking to me in swirly, fancy, newscaster French. And the voice is saying to me, come to this town and don't rent. You can't rent when you live here. I said, that's fine, I won't move there. The voice was more in fact, no, come here, but don't rent. You have to build when you come here. And I woke up right after that. That dream seemed so real. And I thought, wow, God is really good at French. <laughs> then I did kind of an Ebenezer Scrooge thing where I thought, no, that couldn't have been real. And I went back to bed. And a couple months after that, I'm down in the Capitol. The capital is about two million people on the end of this peninsula with one highway that goes out to it. So you can imagine the traffic jams they have. And I'm leaving town, going back to where I'm going to spend the night there, and traffic just stops. It's the kind of traffic jam you just shut off the engine and you just cook there in the sun. And an hour goes by and two hours, three hours, four hours go by. And the whole time, God, you know when he wants to really impress something on you? He isolates you in some way. So God, it just seems like he's telling me, find a way to build a school in that town and to build a mission station with a place for you to live in that town where you broke down. So finally, I have some peace with God. I said, okay, when I get back to where I'm going to spend the night, I'll send an email to one person, and he can tell you and I both that we're crazy. And it was after 1 o'clock in the morning before I got back to where I was going to spend the night in the capital. I found out there had been a bomb threat at the Bank of Africa, and the road I was on went right past that bank, so the police had to shut down traffic. And I get there, and I open the computer, and I already have an email from the person I was going to write. And he says, somebody in McCook, Nebraska, just passed away, and on their deathbed, they left you $45,000 to build something. I said, man, that is amazing. Long story short, we used that money to buy land to build a mission station with a place for us to live, but enough land next door to make a school. The school cost about $150,000 to make. And during that year, BGMC contacted me. They said, we're looking for a project for 2016. So I sent the proposal, they accepted it, and over the course of 2016, how much do you think BGMC raised? to build that school in Senegal. $204,000. That's a lot of pennies and nickels. <laughs> God doing what only God can do. And this church has supported us and stood behind what God is doing for probably close to 15 years now. Investing, being part in what God is doing. Thank you for your continued support, not just for us in Senegal, but all the other countries where you support missionaries as well. 
the church that invests in what God is doing around the world in places that may never affect you, the church that has that vision and takes that step will always be blessed and be used by God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for this body of believers in this church. God, I pray for you to bless each one here. May none of us ever give up on you, no matter how difficult the situation may seem, no matter how, 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 how distant you may seem some of the time. God, may we know that you have a plan, and that we're part of your plan, and that you see us, and that each one of us is important. May our attitude never change. May we never lose our faith because of the outward circumstances. May we be used by you in the glorious plan that you have for each one of us. This I pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Forever God is faithful. Amen. What a great challenging word that goes right along with what we've been talking about in Hebrews 11 and 12. And through difficulty, run with endurance the race that is set before you. And... Uh, and don't ring the bell. Maybe we need to add that in there. Run with endurance the race set before you and don't ring the bell. Um, what a privilege to partner with Brian and Laura. And that's, this is a picture, this is a moment where you get a snapshot. Um, when we take these missions offerings uh, the first Sunday of every month or you give your faith promise, uh, this is a picture of what you're doing. You're investing in the kingdom of God in a place that maybe you don't get to see. Uh, and we do give newsletters and reports and um, the missionaries come back and share with us the things that God is doing. And now we're getting to see our return on the investment that we've made, our prayers and our giving. And so we want to just encourage you to continue uh, to be faithful in that. And today we're going to give you a chance to give in an offering uh, specifically for Brian and Laura. We're going to pass on to them. If you normally use um, the electronic giving and maybe you're not prepared to give and you want to do it electronically, you can still do that. Uh, but what we're going to ask you to do is maybe take an envelope like this, mark it ELT for electronic, and put the amount on there that you're going to give, and then just put that offering envelope in there. That way, when we uh, total up the offering today, we can add that electronic gift in there. And so you can still give electronically that way. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. Uh, they're going to lead us as, uh, as we take up this offering. They're going to lead us in that song that we started with today, Forever. Forever God is Faithful. And uh, just felt like that was a great way to end uh, this service and uh, the message and the things that God has been saying through, through the service today. And so the ushers are going to come, and uh, as, they, uh, as we pray and uh, given this offering, let's sing this last song together. If you want to stand, if you want to sit, however you want to sing it, and uh, let's just do that. So Father, thank you again for your faithfulness. Uh, God, thank you for the things uh, that you're doing in Senegal. God, thank you for the ways that you are changing lives. And God, thank you for the reminder that sometimes it takes 15 years and sometimes it looks like a situation that could never change.